Hey, this is Stu at Bitcoin Fi, the cross section between financial independence and Bitcoin. And today I have a special interview with an awesome investor, mostly in real estate, John Coffey. He is also very knowledgeable about the Federal Reserve and has been very outspoken about how the Federal Reserve and the central bank in America and other countries as well, but just how, how they've started to lose credibility. And this is kind of a complex topic, but I hope that you learn a little bit about how the Federal Reserve and the Central Bank works. There's going to be a part two to this interview to kind of keep things a little bit shorter, but in this episode you're going to be learning a little bit about how the Federal Reserve has distorted the valuations of stocks based on fundamentals by using ZERP, which is an acronym for Zero Interest Rate Policies. So kind of an interesting discussion. He speaks at a higher, more advanced level, and I try to kind of bring it down to a little more basic level, and at the end I'll have some takeaways. So with that, enjoy the show, and we'll get into it now. All right, well, welcome to the show, John. Great to have you on here. I always find what you post on, on LinkedIn very interesting, very insightful comments, and the real reason you're on LinkedIn is to raise awareness for a women and children's shelter. Can you tell us more about what you do with that organization? Absolutely. Um, the Shelter for Abused Women and Children is in Naples, Florida. This is where I spend my fall and winter. I became involved through a friend of mine. Uh, a couple were heavily involved in, in shelter. And I asked them if I could help out. What they do is they help uh, the victims of domestic violence and human trafficking. They do it in a number of different ways. They provide safe transitional accommodation for over 100 people. They provide daycare. They provide every kind of support service. They provide legal assistance. They work on a plan with every person to kind of get them back into society in a safe way and build up their independence. They give them a lot of kind of training. A lot of people don't have uh, proper financial literacy, for example. Uh, they also go out into the neighborhood and into the schools and try and educate you know, teenage boys as to how to treat uh, women properly. A couple of the things that impressed me, I, you know, you, a lot of charities get a bad reputation. You see the CEO taking out a big salary or you know, doing strange contracts with companies that they're connected with and so on. First thing I do when I, before I get involved with a charity is to look and see what salaries have been taken out, look and see what percentage of the donations actually go to the cause. In the case of the shelter, 89% uh, of the money goes directly to the cause. So the administration cost is not too heavy. They're also highly integrated with the local police force and, and local government. The mayor and the sheriff are on the board of the shelter. Uh, and they also have their financial accounts audited by a company called Charity Navigator that reviews all of the charities uh, in, in the United States. And, you know, the shelters within the top 2% in terms of the way their finances are set up. Uh, a lot of wonderful people doing a lot of great things for, you know, a cause that is really a disturbing one. Obviously, domestic violence is very disturbing. Human trafficking is even more disturbing. It's kind of gone on under our noses and we're not always aware of it. But uh, um, I asked if I could be involved. No one asked me to become involved. Um, I feel I've been very, very fortunate in life, uh, financially and in, in general. And uh, I feel it's very important to try and give something back. 
I'm involved in a couple of charities in Ireland. One is the Cancer Charity, uh, Cancer Support Services. Another one was involved in feeding the homeless. Uh, I tried when I get involved to see if, if I can use my own skills to good effect. And this is the first time I've been able to do that because I came up with an approach which they were happy with of trying to build up their funding. I think it's roughly maybe 15 to 20 million dollars a year is the budget for running the shelter. So to try and find incremental sources of funding for them through my LinkedIn network, I have a pretty substantial LinkedIn network. It's mostly financial specialists and mostly people who would be reasonably well off. So it's a combination of two things. One is getting, you know, local firms, local financial institutions or corporations to partner with the shelter in different ways, sponsor different things, provide some funding. The other one, which ironically, coincidentally, I'll be starting in about 10 days time is I'm going to do a, a one-off online fundraising on LinkedIn for the shelter, hoping that the connections that I have may be willing or some of them to provide a small donation. Uh, my newsletter, I do a weekly newsletter every Monday. So the Monday after next Monday will be dedicated to that purpose. Uh, so fingers crossed, that's the background. That's, that's awesome. I really love that. That's pretty cool. I mean, how efficient that organization is. You know, it's a very serious problem for a lot of people and that they're able to step in and help, I think is great. It's very impressive. Like what we do is when, when I connect with people, very often I meet with, say I might meet with the CEO of a local bank. Uh, we have a quick lunch and I ask him to consider doing a tour of the shelter. And then you know, the tour takes about 40 minutes and usually they come down and they're very extremely impressed by what they see. You know, seeing something on the ground is better than any description on a website or a letter, you know. And usually anyone that comes to take the tour is sufficiently motivated then to, to get involved afterwards. Yeah, so I'll look for that on LinkedIn. And it seems like something that's awesome to get involved with. And I, I did notice it is in the newsletter at the top of every yes, that's newsletter. Yes, so yeah, look for that. And by the way, great newsletter. You've been doing it. I think we're on, what, 12 weeks of newsletters? Approximately 12 weeks. The, the reason uh, I set up the newsletter was, I think, you know, those of us who are on LinkedIn, like yourself, regular, we're in a daily battle with the LinkedIn algorithm, uh, who, who effectively controls who sees our posts. And as you probably know, I think typically your posts go to only about 10% of your connections, mostly based on who who's engaged with them in the past. You have to be asked by LinkedIn to, to write the newsletter. You can't choose to do so yourself unilaterally. Uh, they only ask a certain number of people. But if you are asked to do so, the beauty of a newsletter is that all of the people who subscribe will see it. And therefore, it <laughs> provides a way around the algorithm uh, in a way. And that's why I chose to try and build it up. I tried to do something a little bit different in the newsletter in the sense that I post daily on LinkedIn. Uh, and when I post, it's usually in response to the latest financial developments and some sort of commentary on those. Uh, whereas on the newsletter, I try to make something a bit more qualitative that might help people who are maybe a little bit less experienced in the investment world or in the financial world to grow their own appreciation of the factors behind what moves the markets, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, that, that makes sense. I just learned a lot there because, you know, I post very sporadically and I get not a lot of engagement and what, everything you just said makes sense. 
So yeah. I know I've written a few articles, but I didn't know you had to be asked to write a newsletter or given that opportunity, basically. Yeah, you have to get creators, what they call a creator status. And I presume the creator status is probably, I don't know for sure, but it's probably based on the level of engagement that you have with your posts. And LinkedIn will presumably go to people that they perceive have a high level of engagement. Uh, and on the basis that their newsletters might be sufficiently interesting to get that engagement. So again, it's probably a long process, as you say, it took me quite a while to build up my, my network, probably about two years to be honest. Wow. Crazy. All right. So I learned a lot just now about how to, how to game LinkedIn and how to gain a following, but the real reason I guess that you're on this podcast is to talk about, well, there's a lot going on. We got issues going on with the Federal Reserve, with central banks, inflation in our country. Can you kind of give us a lay of the land of what's going on with inflation and how, I guess, explain it to me like I'm five with the Federal Reserve and the central bank's hand in this situation we're in right now? Okay, well, this I think this situation has been building for a while. I think that although the primary mission of the Federal Reserve and of the other mainstream central banks is controlling inflation, they have not acted in that manner for quite some time. It hasn't been a concern probably for 10 or 20 years because we've had a very low inflation environment anyway. But now inflation has crept up on us. Um, it probably shouldn't have crept up on us because, you know, the signs should have been pretty obvious. You know, when you have very extensive corporation tax cuts, when you have zero interest rates, when you have massive quantitative easing, when you have massive fiscal stimulus, I mean, basically the kitchen sink has been thrown at this. If someone said to you, let's create the biggest inflation we can possibly create, that's what you would do, what's, what's been done. Now, a lot of that is at, 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 at the book of the uh, Federal Reserve and the central banks. A certain amount obviously is coming from the government and clearly a certain amount was driven by the motivation to protect people from the pandemic. But I think they have done way more than is necessary. And, you know, they turn on the tap at the smallest reason and then they forget to turn it off. These are all meant to be emergency measures. When we went to zero interest rates, that was an emergency measure. We've been there like for over 10 years. You know, the emergency stops, they leave the tap on. Uh, so it's become, you know, asymmetrical. To my mind, monetary policy used to be symmetrical. When the economy was struggling, you turned on the tap and you tried to ease financial conditions and help the economy to recover. When the economy was running a little bit too hot, you turned off the tap, you withdrew some money from the economy and tried to rebalance things. What we've had for the last 20 plus years, 30 years in fact, is asymmetrical policy where when the economy is struggling, we turn on the tap, but when the economy is running too hot, we don't do anything about it and particularly the stock market. Okay, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe the, the Federal Reserve has two mandates. The first one was full employment, and the second one is keeping inflation in check. But they've kind of taken on this third one, which is protecting your 401k, and that one goes against the inflation mandate because what you're saying is yeah. they, they leave the tap on, and basically when the next emergency comes, they don't have any ammo or they have a lot less ammo and they compound the problem. They basically just turn the water on higher, but they never turned it off. 
Yes, and um, you know, you made a good point there. I think about having enough ammo in in the what I would call the old world, and I'm old enough to remember the old world, which goes back to pre 1987. They did apply a symmetrical policy, and what that meant was, you know, when when they needed to, they pushed interest rates, you know, quite a bit higher. And that meant interest rates were high enough that they could reduce them when they needed to and still have some ammo left, so to speak. But when you reduce and, and you don't put them back up or not by nearly enough, and then you reduce again, you eventually get to zero as we have done. And you get to negative interest rates in some countries in Europe, you know, I live in Ireland, and we've had negative deposit rates for several years now. So you put your money with the bank and you get less back. You know, it's just totally counterintuitive. And, you know, anyone who has read my posts with any frequency will know that I'm very, very cynical about the Federal Reserve in particular, because what they say and what they do are very different things. On the surface, they express a concern about inflation, uh, yet their actions, it's all talk, they don't take any action. As of right now, the Federal Reserve is still doing QE. They are still buying bonds. So they are still increasing inflation. Whereas publicly, they're saying they're very worried about it. Privately, uh, they are still buying bonds and will continue to do so, to my knowledge, for another three weeks approximately. So the size of their balance sheet is still growing. That's absolutely ridiculous. Clearly, they should have stopped doing that a long time ago. And therefore, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy and insincerity going on there, you know. Yeah, so let's let's break down quantitative easing or QE, you know, really simply. And I think you already did. It's basically buying bonds. The Federal Reserve is the buyer of last resort and kind of like propping things up and they put it on their balance sheet. And what they're talking about, which they still haven't done. And now, uh, you know, we're recording on February 24th and Russia started invading Ukraine last night. And Taiwan is reporting that there are fighter jets from China in their airspace, which is not an uncommon occurrence. So things are kind of going crazy. Basically, this might be another emergency, but we're still on zero. And they might not, what's known as taper, which is kind of unwinding what they have been doing. That's, that's what you call turning off the tap. So you have quantitative yes. easing and quantitative taper. Can you talk about how that works with, you know, how does buying sure. bonds? Well, like, I want just to just to distinguish between you know what they call QE and QT. Um, QT is quantitative tightening, and just to make the distinction. Obviously, the taper that you mentioned is when we are reducing the amount of bonds that the central bank is buying, but they're still buying. They're just buying less which is what's been happening for the last uh, several months. So they've been buying, they were originally buying, I think, $120 billion a month, and they gradually reduced that, I think, maybe down to about $20 or $30 billion a month right now, and due to finish in March. And then the um, quantitative tightening is when they actually start to take the, some of that money back out by selling bonds. So as you rightly said, you know, it provides a massive support. It puts a lot of money into the economy uh, and that money has to go to work somewhere and typically that money goes to work in the stock market and essentially if you were to look at the total amount of QE that uh, it, I don't have the exact figure to mind but I think it might be something of the order of three and a half trillion dollars uh, that the Fed has put in since they started the increase in the capital value of the stock market in the United States is almost identical. 
So it's almost one for one, which begs right. the question that when they start to quantitatively tighten and take the money back out, logic would say we should see a, a very substantial reduction in the uh, capital value of, of the stock market. Um, and that's obviously a big concern. Okay, so, so they're buying bonds, which basically is adding liquidity to the financial system. Yeah, the problem is that in essence, the Fed should be looking after the economy and not the stock market. And you know, if you look after the economy, the stock market by definition will look after itself. If you create conditions between the Federal Reserve and the government to enable companies to function well, to enable economic growth, clearly you'll have a good stock market. But what the Federal Reserve has done by instituting the so-called Fed put is that the stock market has boomed, obviously, for many, and it's got egregious valuations now way above uh, the, the intrinsic value of most of those companies. Uh, but it hasn't filtered through to Main Street. The guy on the street, the ordinary Joe on the street, he doesn't own stocks. He doesn't have spare money. And the ironic and sad thing now is that when the boot turns on the other foot, and the market turns and inflation is rising, he's the first guy that's gonna be hit. So he got none of the profits and he's gonna be whacked in the head with the losses because he's already paying more for his gas, more for his food, uh, more for his housing. So really the Federal Reserve has been massively instrumental in increasing the level of social inequality in, in the country. Okay, this is uh, all very interesting. And I think you made an important point and this is where I was kind of getting confused as well, but looking after the economy versus the stock market. The stock yeah. market is not the economy. It's kind of a proxy for the economy, but it is different. And we have Wall Street versus Main Street. You know, we have a, we have a lot of publicly traded companies and that's the stock market, but there are also a lot of privately held companies and that is what we would call Main Street, correct? Yes. So I'm just thinking through this, but basically what you're saying is, everyone's 401k has access to these stocks, these publicly traded companies through Wall Street. And that's what they're worried about. But on the other hand, Main Street is getting killed. Yeah, and unfortunately, the 401ks will probably get killed as well now. They've done extremely well over the last decade or so. But you see, you have to distinguish between what's real and what's fake. So, you know, if you own shares in a large loss-making company that's losing billions of dollars, but the share price keeps going up, is that fake or is that real? In my view, it's fake. Unless that company can turn that around, turn that growth into profitability, in most cases, they won't be able to. And therefore, to me, this is one of the problems because of what the Fed has done by, by pouring all this money into the market, which has gone into the stock market. It's inflated valuations of companies that don't make any profit. So it has actually completely distorted the price-making mechanism or what we would call price discovery on the market. You know, and to maybe summarize that, you know, if you have a price agnostic buyer buying 30% of everything that's available, it means the price is no longer real. The price should be the equilibrium price between buyers and sellers. And in a normal market, buyers and sellers take account of valuation, profitability, and so on. But the Federal Reserve is buying bonds regardless of what the price is. 
They were buying so much per month and they will for the next month, regardless of the price. So therefore, my perspective would be that we have not, not had proper price discovery in the stock market for, for, for more than a decade. And therefore, a lot of the prices are just not real. And it's interesting because what's happening in the last six months, certainly, we've seen large price declines on the stock market. And the biggest declines by far are for the companies that don't make money. So I think we're coming back to the old environment where you know, analysts estimated stock valuations based on profitability. That's disappeared for 10 years, but now it's coming back. Yeah, okay. So a few thoughts here to kind of tie this together and maybe get to some takeaways. You talked about real versus fake. There are a lot of unprofitable companies that are trading, like Uber. How long has Uber been around and Lyft? They are unprofitable companies. They only yeah. lose money. So there's this ratio a lot of people use to decide the fair value of a stock, and it's called price to earnings. Yeah. And it's, it's the price of the stock, or like, and how many shares outstanding, divided by the earnings per share, right? Yes. And some of them don't even have, uh, what is it, the bottom one, the, the denominator? Some of them don't even have the earnings. So right. there's no realistic price for it. But what's happening is there's so much money sloshing around in the system, so much venture capital that the, the strategy right now, like even Amazon wasn't profitable forever. They ran at a loss to basically grow. They subsidized everything. And now Amazon, I think, is at a point where they are profitable. Although they are highly valued, they're at about 56 on the price to earning. The average is around, what, 20 15 to 20. Yeah, yeah. And so what they did though is they subsidized everything, gave everyone a really good deal. Amazon now makes money, but the thing is, is like they're so ingrained in every household that they can raise prices. It used to be the place where you bought cheap stuff, basically, yeah. for a good deal. Yeah. Now, now they turn a profit. It's not a place where you get cheap stuff anymore. And I don't think people realize that. It's just a convenience factor because it's so ingrained. But yeah. anyway, if you want a better deal, Amazon's not your place anymore. <laughs> so but that's that's kind of the idea is all these companies get all this money pumped in it's easy they can borrow because the federal reserve has put interest rates at zero so they get this cheap easy money they can afford the payments even though they're actually losing money and therefore they're propped up and what you're well, saying this is the point that they have destroyed the whole mechanism of the market in a very bad way and just to reflect what you have said you know, in essence, what we've had for the last 10 years, at least, if not more, is we have a whole host of companies, effectively what I would call it, selling a dollar for 75 cents. And the, and the impact of this is, is enormous because, for example, let's say you're running a nice business and it's a very efficient business, well-managed, and, you know, you're making a margin, say, 10%. So you're selling a dollar for a dollar and 10, and that keeps you and your employees in, in business and so on. And then suddenly a guy opens up down the road and he's now selling the same product for 75 cents. You can't survive that. And over time, your well-managed business goes bust. And he's still there because he's getting money from the equity market because there's so much money sloshing around. So it's actually destroying the whole principles of proper business. And you have all the Ubers, as you rightly say, who have never made any money. And I would even throw in people like Tesla into that because they have massive accumulated losses. They're profitable now at the moment, but you know they have massive accumulated losses. They've been living off a lot of government subsidies. Uh, there's massive assumptions built in that they're going to basically sell every car in the world in 10 years' time. 
which they're never going to be able to match, in my opinion. <clears throat> but you just have this totally distorted market. Um, you know, and it, it, it was possible to keep the balloon in the air with interest rates at zero. The problem is now they have to fix inflation. The only way to fix inflation is to put interest rates substantially higher. <clears throat> and if they do, the old mechanism uh, doesn't work anymore. <clears throat> Excuse me. And these companies will not be able to continue to survive without profitability. They won't right. get funded. Yeah. <clears throat> Good point. So, like you said, to control inflation, they have to raise interest rates, but they're kind of painted into a hole because whatever <clears throat> interest rate they set, the government also has to pay. And, and therefore their debt becomes unmanageable because they can't afford those payments when they're that high with that much debt. Is that right? Absolutely. <clears throat> They've created this problem themselves by allowing the government to borrow so much and by enabling them. And of course, politicians will never turn down the opportunity to, to get more money uh, to pass out. And uh, essentially what they have enabled is they've enabled Americans to live beyond their means for 10 or 20 years, probably I'd say 20 years. So <clears throat> Americans have been spending more money than they have. And when you spend more money than you have, eventually at some stage, you've got to pay it back. And we had a debt ceiling just, that just got breached and breached and breached and breached. So it didn't really exist at all. Uh, so there's no financial discipline whatsoever in Congress. You know, a proper central bank back in the day, in my earlier days, would have been issuing all kinds of warnings about irresponsible behavior by the government and would have been you know, raising interest rates and doing different things to counteract that behavior. But instead, the Fed has got into bed with Congress and is fully enabling everything and has done so for such a long time. And now, as you said, they've created this situation. And there's no good choices anymore. You know, In order to get inflation down, it's normal that you need to have an interest rate above the rate of inflation. And we've got inflation at 7.5%. So 8%, 8% would bankrupt three quarters of the company in the stock market at this stage because they're yeah. leveraged so much. So even going to, you know, three or 4% has a massive impact. And they create the problem themselves. You know, it's just beyond belief that someone could do that, but that's what they've done. There's a lot to, to talk about there, but, but yeah, this is when home mortgages, you know, you could be paying 10, 12% if they did that instead of, my home yeah. mortgage is like two and a half percent or something. So, so you can imagine what that will do to the property market. What would do to the property market if it happened? You know. Yeah, and so we'll have to see if if they have the guts if they're going to default. If you know, I don't know how it's going to play out, but like you said, there's no easy way out. It's basically the stage is set for maximum pain. It sounds like so. Well, I mean, the market is assuming, and I think the market is probably incorrect and maybe a bit complacent on this, but the market is assuming at what they call a terminal rate, which means the rate that the Fed funds will stop increasing uh, of roughly 2.5%, maybe even a little bit less. So the market is assuming that by the time the Fed gets to 2.5% on the Fed funds rate, uh, that the stock market will have fallen sufficiently that they won't want to increase rates any further, uh, which then begs the question, and this is the point, whatever that terminal rate is, that is the point where the Fed has to make a choice. And they now have to make a choice to say, do we save the stock market uh, or do we actually fulfill our mandate and control inflation? And I've no idea what the answer will be, but I do know they can't do both. So to kind of wrap up maybe a little bit on this topic, um, 
So the average of, of the whole stock market, the price to earnings ratio of all companies is I think in the high 30s. And historically, yeah. I think it's around 17. So it's about double what it should be. It's, it's very high like it, it was in the dot-com bust. Things were just way overvalued. Yeah. So my thinking about this right one, I think the takeaway, now I'm a buy and hold index fund investor for the most part. Yes. I, I guess my question is, do you think index funds have contributed to this problem because they buy, you know, my 401k just buys an index fund of the S&P 500 or the, the world fund, the international fund, and it doesn't care about price to earnings. So that money is just going to keep going. And that's like everyone's 401k. Is that part of the problem is index funds? I think that's a very good question, actually. Um, it's been raised by several people uh, over the last several months because index funds are obviously cheap uh, to, to enter into. And index funds have outperformed the vast majority of active fund managers. But the problem is exactly what you say. Index funds buy everything. So if you have, you know, 100 companies in the index and 10 of them are absolutely terrible companies, because they're in the index, so long as they're in it, they have to be bought. If they're big loss-making companies, they have to be bought. If they have a PE ratio that's through the roof, they have to be bought. So it's totally indiscriminate. And what that means is that the poorer companies that are in the index will get unrealistic support and unrealistic purchasing and their valuations will be unrealistic. At some stage, I think something will have to give and maybe, you know, active management will make a comeback in, in the near future where fund managers who do focus on the quality companies and the likes of Berkshire Hathaway and people like that who are long-term investors, I think they will probably do better. I think for index funds, they've been hugely popular. Uh, my own son is an index uh, indexation manager, in fact, in, in a life company. Uh, and that business has just grown and grown and grown. But maybe it's going to peak out uh, sometime soon. You know, what you said is interesting about the uh, PE ratios and what they are now and what it maybe should be. I made a short on the uh, S&P uh, 500 about uh, two years ago, roughly at about half the current valuation, because that's where I felt it should be lower than that. Uh, obviously, uh, I haven't looked so clever for a couple of years on that. It wasn't for a huge amount of money, thankfully. Uh, I personally believe I will eventually uh, close that trade at a profit. I don't know how many years it takes. Uh, I still have it. But um, yes, you know, in the previous world, before all of the uh, intervention by the central banks, it was normally considered a high P, anything in the high 20s was considered to be high. Anything around the 15 level was considered to be the average or the median. And anything kind of down towards 10 was considered cheap. So even when we had the crash in 2006, we never got down below 15. Stocks never actually became cheap. And then, as you said, we, we've gone to these crazy valuations, mostly because of the central bank policies. And also because companies have been rigging the game to a certain degree with money so cheap, instead of reinvesting you know, money in um, new plant and R&D, they've been doing massive share buybacks and borrowing money to do share buybacks, push the share price even higher and make that P ratio even higher. So there's, that's another distortion as well. Interesting. I don't know if we want to go into the buyback. Uh, I feel like we're getting a little deep already, but increasing. Well, maybe very briefly, just very briefly to say that, you know, 
you mentioned the PE ratio, which is the price of the share over the earnings. Uh, there are two ways you can improve that. One is by growing your earnings. The other way is by reducing the supply of shares. So if you reduce the supply of shares, you can get the PE ratio without growing your earnings at all. And we've had billions and billions of dollars being spent buying back shares and very often buying back shares at stupid prices at the top of the market just to get that ratio up. So personally, I would believe share buyback should be banned. You know, that you, you have other choices. You can give the money to your employees. You can reinvest the money in the company. You can pay dividends to the shareholders. To me, there's absolutely no reason for share buybacks other than manipulating the number. Yeah, it is. It's, it's just a manipulation of it. Essentially, if a company had a certain amount of earnings and 100,000 shares, all they're doing is the company will use their profit to buy 10,000 shares. And now the ratio is better. Even though the company is the same, they didn't actually exactly. earn more. They didn't become more profitable. They did nothing. Or, or like you said, maybe they're using debt to do this. That's cheaper somehow. But um, I think even Berkshire Hathaway, you know, I think... Warren Buffett was kind of against buybacks, but now Berkshire Hathaway is even doing this, which is interesting. Well, I think in the case, I'm a huge fan of Warren Buffett, and uh, I think he's probably still the smartest investor that there's been. But to, I suppose, make his case, he has always said that he will only do share buybacks when he has no other use for the money and when the share price of Berkshire has gone sufficiently low to make that a genuinely uh, advantageous thing to do. Uh, he never does it just to boost their PE ratio. And, uh, you know, Berkshire Hathaway has, if I'm correct, roughly 150 billion in cash because they don't see any value in the markets. Uh, they're not buying companies uh, anything like the scale they would have done so 10 years ago. Uh, and they've got to put that money somewhere. So. I think their case is a little bit different than what we typically see, you know? Right. And I am a big fan of him as well. I, I think you're right. You know, they do have so much cash. Like you said, he can't think of anything else to do because he's a value investor. And when he's yeah. looking at the price to earnings ratio, he can't find anything attractive. Like you said, everything is overvalued. You thought it was yeah. overvalued two years ago. I and, did, yeah. And I think you're along the same vein as Warren Buffett and so what is he going to do? Yeah, not as rich as him, but I, I think in the same way. <laughs> You're thinking the same way, but uh, I mean, I guess his other option would be to do a dividend, but for some reason, he's never really showed interest in that either. So anyway. Well, I think possibly because most Berkshire Hathaway investments don't want the money back. They want to keep the money there because they know, like to me, I had shares in Berkshire Hathaway many years ago and, uh, you're, you're getting the world's best fund manager without having to pay any fund management fees. That's what I look at. You know, I mean, if you go to a, a fund manager, you're going to pay away maybe one and a half percent or whatever in terms of various fees. Uh, Berkshire is probably the best fund manager. You just buy the shares and you don't pay any fees. So uh, people want to leave their money in for the most part. That makes sense to me. I'd never thought of it that way. So, I mean, what's the takeaway with all this? It seems like we're in an inflationary period. Rates might go up. My takeaway, and add to this if you if you would, but value stocks are where it's at. You know, a lot of people lag the average stock market returns because they get in their own way. They start trading. They start selling when they shouldn't. They start buying when they shouldn't. You know, when you start timing the market, you got to be right when you sell and when you buy. It's very hard to do both. 
even if you're right at one point. So I haven't really changed anything that I currently hold, but my new money, I'm thinking it needs to go into value stocks and maybe consumer durables. You know, no one's going to stop buying shampoo from Procter & Gamble or Unilever yeah. Yeah. or Walmart, stuff like that. So consumer durables, value stocks, and maybe REITs are kind of what I'm thinking my new money should go to, a real estate investment trust, that is. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, like what you think is probably the best course. I of think in terms of in terms of stocks, you're right. I think, you know, everyday necessities, consumer durables, utilities, things that people have to buy rather than things that people need rather than things that people want. Uh, in fact, there was a post, it may have been either Tully Orbach or Sanju who did a post the other day on LinkedIn of the performance of the different stock categories over the last 12 months. And it was very interesting because the, the stocks that performed the best were all from the sectors based on what we need to have. And the ones that performed the worst were all from what we want to have, but it's discretionary. I suppose it, it depends then, you know, if you're trying to protect your 401k, it depends how much you want to be in the stock market in the first place. I think if you want to be in the stock market, what you mentioned makes a lot of sense. It may also make a lot of sense to be in commodities, uh, to be in inflation-linked bonds, which protect you against inflation. The real estate investment trust is an interesting one because it's difficult to tell how the real estate is a market that's close to my heart. I've been very heavily involved in real estate for a few decades now, and especially since I retired, it's been very, very good to me. But, you know, you have to say, well, what will happen to real estate in an inflationary environment? In one sense, you know, house prices should go up when we've got inflation. The cost of all the materials and building a house are certainly going up. The cost of the labor is certainly going up. So should the price go up? Yes, it should. On the other hand, if interest rates are going up, the cost of a mortgage is going up. Less people can afford to buy at the current price line. So that's, a, that's an impact in the opposite direction. So if they weren't at already elevated levels, I would say real estate is still a good investment. But because we've had such a boom already, I would be a little bit nervous about real estate, you know, in terms of earning a good capital appreciation over the next five or six years, for example. Okay, so let me make sure I understand what you're saying with real estate. Real estate is kind of a hard asset. There's about 140 million single family homes in America, and they make about a half a percent of that a year. So they're only adding about 500,000 to a million homes a year, which is not very much. And there's a lot of demand right now because rates are still historically pretty low. Yeah. And the reason they're going up is, you know, there is a lot of demand, low rates, um, I think the work from home thing has been a huge push for homes because people want their home office. They want to have a yard for their dog. They don't want to live in a studio apartment anymore. And so the home prices are going up. It's more expensive to build a new home. Like you said, the lumber and the labor is more expensive. So those are all things that are going to push real estate up. But if the Fed does raise rates, that is going to make it more expensive to borrow. And therefore, it's going to tamp down demand on real estate. So those two things, you know, might cancel each other out and we might see some more downward pressure. Maybe that downward pressure will push down the uh, upward pressure. So it's kind of what you're saying. You're a little wary on REITs. My own feeling would be that real estate prices in nationwide on average, obviously it's, it differs from location to location. And as you said, the work from home is a very big factor. So 
locations outside major cities, locations in cheaper, sunnier states have done better. But on a national average, I would feel we've probably already peaked. And I think when we look back in six to 12 months' time, we'll see that the peak was perhaps, I don't know, November or something like that, November, December of 21. But the question to my mind is more whether we stabilize or have a small drop or whether we have a more significant drop. And, you know, I think that depends on two things. One, how far the Fed increased rates by. And secondly, you know, we've had a big wealth effect from the stock market. That's made people confident to buy bigger houses. They've been doing very well on their stocks. Uh, if the stock market has a significant correction, obviously we get a reverse of that wealth, wealth effect and uh, people will feel they have less money to spend on their house. So I think the risk is on the downside now, but how big the risk is, is difficult to tell. And you know, going back to what you said originally, which I think is extremely important, you know, real estate is a hard asset. It's the hardest asset you can get, in my opinion. You know, if we have a complete disaster situation, real estate is probably still one of the best assets to be in. A real estate will never go to, never go to zero. A house will never go to zero. You know, it'll always have an income. You can live in it. You can rent it. Uh, a stock can go to zero. A bond can go to zero. A bank can go bust. So, you know, it's good to have real estate from that point of view. Uh, and if you're not over leveraged, to me, the only risk on real estate is being over leveraged and you get forced out in a market downturn. If you're not over leveraged or if you're able to buy real estate with cash, which is what I have typically done, then you can never be squeezed out and you can take a long term view. And in the long term, it's always going up. You know, if you take like a 15, 20 year view, it's always going up. So if you're if you're able to wait long term, I, I invest long term, like my average is probably seven years in terms of any transaction, whether it be real estate or stocks. Uh, so you're not kind of churning very much, you know, and on that basis, real estate is still very good, you know? Yeah, my thought on real estate is, you know, some people are saying, yeah, you know, this is 2008, it's going to crash. I, I tend to not think so because there is such low supply and there's still a lot of demand. I, I think you're, I mean, to go up, what, 20% on the national average in the last year, uh, I think it also correlates to the amount of money that was printed, you know, kind of like what you said with the yeah, stock market going up, yeah, yeah. it was almost commensurate with the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, kind of the same thing there. I tend to think that real estate kind of plateaus, but when you do buy a real estate investment trust, you can buy the broad one that's going to get you commercial real estate, sure. uh, you know, land, all sorts of stuff, agriculture, uh, apartment buildings, whatever. You can also get sector-specific ones like medical real estate and different stuff sure. like that. Yeah, yeah. So I don't really know where it's going to go. I mean, I've only ever done the, the broad Vanguard REIT, but I, I thought that might be a decent one because the dividends are about 3%, so that helps offset things. But I think you're right. I mean, probably more risk is to the downside, but I wouldn't be I think in terms of a, of a REIT, if you are going to be smart about it, uh, the thing to do would be to buy one of these niche sectors. So, for example, if you bought in, into a real estate investment trust that was specializing, say, for example, in industrial warehousing, you know, one of the things that's happening is globalization is reversing. You know, America is taking back jobs, it's, it's building back factories and so on. So the, that area is going to have huge demand, I would imagine. It has and the supply chain issues as well. Uh, so that would be a very safe real estate sector to be in, in my opinion. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially, um, 
I think what's going on with Russia and potentially with China, you know, yeah. kind of the tensions there. Whereas offices would be the offices. You know, you have offices right. in big cities. Uh, the work from home thing is killing some of that. That would be a much more dangerous kind of investment in my view. Yeah, yeah, that all makes sense to me. Hey, it's Stu here. Hope you enjoyed part one of the interview with John Coffey. We covered a lot of stuff right there, and I hope it didn't go too far over your head. We tried to keep it pretty simple and try to break things down as much as we could. But it took me a few times learning about this subject of the Federal Reserve, central banks, interest rates, quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, tapering, all this stuff. It took me a while to get it all straight in my head. So hopefully this is a, a good foundational education on this stuff. I guess just some of my takeaways that I thought was interesting, and this is not financial advice, I would encourage you to do your own research on all this stuff. This is just for informational and entertainment purposes only, but we talked about some areas where you might want to put new money. Obviously this was recorded in February, and I'm just now releasing it in June. We do now see mortgage rates popping up um, into the 6 to 7% range, and I have just seen in my normal Redfin emails that there are more price drops than I've seen in a long time. So I'm just seeing properties being listed, but then I'll see a price drop of 5000 or 10000 So it does seem like the demand is being softened because the rates are so much higher and some people have been priced out. But in talking with John and just seeing what the Federal Reserve has done and how they are pretty determined to raise rates, I think they want to end this year with a rate around 3.5%, so they're still going to be hiking throughout the rest of the year, most likely. And if that's the case, then there's going to probably be a little bit more pain in the stock market, and where you'd want to be going with new money is into value funds, commodities, utility stocks. Um, if you have the S&P 500, you know, about 20% of that is Apple, Google, Amazon, and Tesla. So these are big tech companies, you're, you're very heavy in tech and very low in other things. Um, you're underweight, you're underallocated in those other segments. And I know this is the case for me personally because I can see that on my personal capital where it breaks down all my holdings and my allocations. So um, it's definitely something I've thought about doing, but I'm not currently doing my 401k. I'm not currently doing my HSA. And I'm only doing Bitcoin in a Roth right now, so I'm not actually buying any stocks lately. But eventually I will again, and it's probably going to be what we've talked about, value funds, commodities, utilities, and stocks like that. Uh, he also talked about sector-specific real estate investment trusts, um, particularly warehouses, just with everything with dropshipping and e-commerce. You know, everyone is still very used to ordering stuff online and just we talked about the deglobalization I think we've seen a good amount of that just with all of the supply chain disruption and how fragile that all is a lot of companies are starting to produce things more in America tighten up their supply chains rethink their supply chains so that could be a good safe real estate investment um, again not financial advice this is just our off-the-cuff talking about what might be a good place to put some money. So I'm going to be researching and looking into those, and I'll keep you updated on what I choose to do. Uh, remember that financial independence is doable, and look out for part two coming out soon.